going to look at the book of Jude for a few moments this morning. I almost decided to not preach this, to do this tonight. And as tonight I'm preaching on Saul. Uh, this is kind of a challenging passage, and I was struggling with it. Um, one of the convictions I have as a pastor is to always be honest with my people, to be transparent, and to share the Word of God and to share what it says. Not what we want it to say or sometimes what we wish it would say, but actually what it says. And there are times that that is difficult. Sometimes we're taught some things incorrectly, and uh, that makes it more challenging to have a pastor have to share the truth. But Jude is a challenging book. It's one of the most difficult books to understand. And because of three verses in this book, which we're going to look at this morning, it was almost not accepted as part of the canon. You say, canon? You mean like the gun? No, no, not the, not the weapon of the Civil War. We call it the canon of Scripture, where the fathers got together, the early Christian fathers, and selected books and decided which ones should not be accepted in the Word of God. And they concluded that the 27 New Testament books we have should be there. And they excluded a bunch. And uh, 14 of them were in what's called the Apocrypha. Now, quite a few of you would say, well, I have a 1611 King James Bible, and you really don't. The Apocrypha was part of that, and it was thrown out in the mid-1700s. So your Bible is not a 1611. And I brought one along here for you to see. And uh, so some, we had the Apocrypha, the books of the Apocrypha, excuse me, that the Catholic Church accepts, and we don't. And then there's other books on the outside that are argued and debated even, even today. One of the books today that people have talked about is the book of Enoch. And so that's what we're going to address today. It is not an inspired book, just like the Apocrypha. The books of the Apocrypha, those men were not inspired either. You see, it's the people who were expired. They're all expired now. Who were inspired. And so Jude was inspired by God. God breathed on him and told him what to write. And we start with the premise that all Scripture is given by inspiration. That means God breathed on men he chose to write. Jude, as you know, was one of the half-brothers of our Lord. Jude and James both wrote inspired books. They were not even believers till after the resurrection, but God inspired them to write. And so we know Jude is inspired. And sometimes there has to be a, a teaching and an explanation on what we mean because some people totally misunderstand inspiration. Scribes were not inspired. From the very first time Moses came down the mount, uh, well, the second time, the first ones were destroyed with the Word of God, scribes began to write word for word those words in the original Semitic language. And when Paul penned words under inspiration. The first scribe that took that was not inspired. Translators are not inspired. Only the original 40 men of God were inspired who gave us our Bible. And so that's something that I've heard twisted and misaligned and misused and misunderstood. Now you understand that there were 40 men who wrote 66 books and God breathed on each one of those men. Either he gave him audible words with an audible voice, or he gave him a dream or a vision. But those 40 men gave us 66 inspired books. And I'm thankful. Today, we know that teaching and doctrine is often overlooked in a church. We have entertainment, as we said, that is 
kind of replaced preaching in some cases. People say we don't need all that doctrine, we don't need that teaching, and yet when you read the sermons by Peter and Paul and Jesus, you realize they were great teachers, and of course they were inspired, and we're thankful for those those, uh, sermons we have. But I don't find anywhere in in the Bible where we're supposed to entertain people at church. We worship Him in song, in giving, in praise, and we preach the Word as they gave us the Word. And we have to stand by the stuff. And so where there's been a falling away from the truth of Scripture today, I was listening to someone this morning who said in the 60s, 73% of Americans said they were active or attended church on a regular basis. And now in 2019, it was down to 47%. So certainly there's a falling away. And we've talked about that because Jude deals with apostasy here. There's been a falling away. So Jesus had six siblings, two of them write write inspired books. And Jude deals with this matter of people, the apostates, the falling away. And it starts with false teaching. And people who professed to be Christians did not possess the Lord have fallen away. If you're truly born again, God will keep you from falling. But you know what? There are a lot of people that profess one thing, but don't know God. And we need to be possessors and not professors. And today we look at these verses. We're going to read verses 13, the middle of the verse, through verse 16. I know it's the tradition to stand, so if you'll stand with me, and we'll look at the words of James. It says in verse 13, the middle of the verse, He's talking about the, uh, the fate of false teachers. He described them in the previous verses. And he says here, the, the, these raging ways, it goes on to say, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness, how long? Forever. Hell is real. It's a darkness. It's a blackness. It says, and Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things, saying, behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now boy, the word ungodly used over and over. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. God bless us as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world, that I'll share what you have given me and share it clearly so we all understand what the Word of God is saying here. Bless each and every one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, we know what is waiting, the fate of the false teachers. The false teachers don't know God, and there awaits for them hell. In fact, hell is awaiting for anybody who's never trusted Jesus Christ. God doesn't send people to hell. They choose to go there by rejecting the Lord. And these apostate or false teachers, uh, darkness awaits. The word here, the blackness translated darkness elsewhere, the blackness of darkness, means the gloom of darkness. There's nothing good in hell. Years ago, I heard someone preach a message. It was on tape. It was preached a couple hundred years ago or something. What's going on in hell? And it talked about all the terrible things in hell, all the terrible people that will be there. You know, none of us want to be in a room with the pedophile. I was just amazed at the direction of our country, and so many things now are acceptable. And nobody wants to be around a pedophile or a pervert 
uh, or a, a, an axe murderer, but they're all in hell. And if you spend eternity there, that's, that's who you're going to spend your time with. It's a special place created for the devil and demons. Unfortunately, people end up there. But so he talks about what's going to happen to these teachers. And it says here in verse 14, and this is, these next three verses are the verses I read are the most challenging to explain to people because there is a book of Enoch and there are books of the Apocrypha and outside sources. And so when we see the prophecy of Enoch, we wonder why is that there? Because Enoch never said a word in Genesis and there is a book of Enoch and this comes out of the book of Enoch and I don't have the book of Enoch. I'm not going to get it because it's not inspired. And that's where the confusion comes into many believers. What is this prophecy of Enoch and is this inspired? It is inspired. Why? Because God told Jude to put it in there. And that changes everything. You say, well, the book of Enoch we don't accept. You're right. A lot of books we don't accept. But we accept Jude and Jude is writing about what Enoch prophesied, and that makes that portion of Enoch inspired in this document only. That's kind of heavy stuff, but let me give you an example. Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Do we believe Titus is inspired? Amen, we do. No question. Titus chapter 1 and verse 12. We'll find this quite often in Scripture. We're going to go there, and this is where you want to mark your Bible. You know, Daniel took a portion of the Babylonian Chronicles, a historical document not inspired, and God instructed him to put that in Daniel. So it is inspired in Daniel because God put it there, but we don't consider the Babylonian historical records inspired. But we do consider it inspired in Daniel because God breathed on Daniel and said, put it in there. So look at Titus chapter 1. Paul does this several times. He'll quote a secular source... And this will be placed in the Bible by the inspiration of God, even though the source was not inspired. Titus 1.12, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Christians are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This is a man by the name of Epimendes, a poet. So Paul quotes his poetry and places it in Scripture. Now, is this verse inspired? Yes. Was Epimendes' writings, his poetry inspired? No. And see, that's the challenge to us, to understand inspiration. I have heard so many people preach Jude, not so many, but a few, and ignore, not say a word about this, and people wonder. And of course, now the world's coming up with this whole new thing of these other books, and the book of Enoch, and there's you know all kinds of things going on now about maybe this should be part of Scripture. No, it should not. Too much of the book of Enoch conflicts with Scripture. While some of it's historically accurate, and this portion becomes inspired when God says to Jude, put that in Jude. And so that's how it works. And I, I hope that's not too much for you to understand, but a lot of people don't get it. And they get frustrated and they think, well, we need the book of Enoch, the prophecy of Enoch. Where is it? Let's get it. Let's accept it as part of the Bible. And they don't understand that God, in inspiration, will oftentimes have a writer, in the case of Daniel and Jude and Paul, put things in the Bible from a document that's not inspired, but it is inspired because God told Jude to put it in here. 
So this is the word of God, and we accept that. And now we look at the prophecy of Enoch. And look at verse 15. <clears throat> he says, excuse me, verse 14. I love verse 14. He says, uh, Enoch speaking, he's, and he's, his seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, he's quoting Enoch, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of the saints. Think of that. Who's going to come with the Lord? We are. And this, is, this is, doesn't give us the numbers it's ten thousands of, but we know this is an unnumbered, we, we don't know the number, but just thousands upon thousands of people are going to come back with Jesus to the earth. And guess who that includes? It includes me. I'm a child of God, and because I'm saved, I'll be raptured one day, and seven years later, I'll come back to the earth for the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? Can you imagine that kingdom? We get all frustrated with our media. I thought, you know, there's 30,000 mayors in our, in our world, and, and we have to pick one to be the transportation secretary. Why did he get picked? Out of all the mayors, why did he get picked? Because he was different than all other men. He was unique. And it just burns me up that we pick people because of, you know, their, their, their lifestyle to become a leader in our country. And I don't believe that poor guy can help solve this problem of 60,000 trucker shortage. And I'll tell you what, we're lucky to be on the East Coast or fortunate, but guess what? The shelves are going to be more and more empty. And, it, it, you know, on the West Coast, it's bad. It's starting to happen here. But we need for God... God to help our country right now. And, and the leadership we have, I have to pray for them. I'm told in Scripture to pray for my leaders. And I'm told not to even criticize them. I criticize their policies. We have the worst policies right now in America. And we need for God to intervene for the good of our country. I worry about my grandkids. Now, I was reared by a pastor and went to a, a, a you know seminary and stuff in places that I was taught never to preach politics, and boy, that's tough not to preach politics when it's going like it's going. But we are reminded of our commission and our calling. We are called to pray for them. Amen. I don't get a lot of amens about praying for our leaders, but we have to pray for them. But you know what? Why I don't worry is because I know God's in control. And one day Jesus is going to come back and set up a perfect kingdom. None of this nonsense will be allowed. I mean, sin will be dealt with. If you commit sin, you won't. You're a believer. But we come back, we're changed. We have the mind of Christ. We have new bodies. But if a sinner commits a sin in the millennium, they're dealt with just like that. A perfect justice system. Oh, I would like that. And that's what's going to happen. So here, we're coming back with the Lord Jesus. Look what it's, what's going to happen. To execute what? Judgment upon all. And to convince all the ungodly of their deeds, they're all going to stand before him. That's the great white throne judgment. Everyone's going to stand before him. And these people are going to answer to God. So we've already looked at the purpose of this letter. And that's to warn the church that the creeps had crept in. And we looked at the problem in the church, the result of this doctrine had turned the church upside down. But we know there's also a plan for action, a plan for action. And so we look at verses 17 to 19. But, beloved, remember ye the words. That's where it begins. When apostasy, when a falling away hits the church like it's hitting it again, we have to remember the words. What words? The words the apostles had taught them. The word of God. 
The apostles, remember, walked with Christ. Many of them wrote, we, we, we're so thankful for Matthew and for John's writing, for Peter's writing and, and other writings. We're thankful for the words of those men. They taught sound doctrine. And so the first step, the first step in resolving the problem, the plan for action is to remember the words. Remember the words spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you there would be mockers in the last days. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Just before Jude is the epistles of John and before that the epistles of Peter. We're looking at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 3 through 6. These mockers in the last days. We have people mocking Christianity. In fact, preaching like I'm preaching this morning would be mocked in many places in our country, wouldn't it? I mean, people would just belittle and attack us for believing the Bible's the Word of God in its entirety, for taking a stand against immorality. We would be mocked. You know, churches all across our land nowadays have people attending and actively involved who are living together. The Bible says to avoid fornication, everyone needs to have their own wife or husband. But this is commonplace. I have a, a person I know very well, lives with her boyfriend, sings in the choir at a Baptist church. And I think, you know, we just, we just totally ignore sin today. We don't preach against sin anymore. It's not popular. It's not entertaining. Well, we don't want to say anything that would discourage anybody. We want everybody to return. And if we make them uncomfortable with the preaching of the truth, maybe they won't come back and our numbers may dip. I don't care about numbers. I love it that we're growing. Thank God I want people saved. But never should we compromise to make people comfortable in church. And, and so, you know, you say, you sound like an old-fashioned. Well, this morning I am an old-fashioned uh, Bible preacher, okay? Uh, and uh, here, here we remember the, the mockers, the mockers. Look, look at verse, verses 3 to 6. And, and the, the mockers walking after their own lusts, mocking. Verse uh, scoffers in verse 3, they're called. Then in verse 4, saying, where is the promise of his coming? They make fun of Christianity. Oh, you talk about his coming back. Where is he? Where is the Lord he's coming back? I mean, I've been thinking he's coming back for 60 years or whatever. And, and I remember Jack Van Empty. You know, he'd be on the, on the program on TV and he would give all these signs. And boy, I'd think, boy, it's getting close. And today I think, man, it's really close. But scoffers say, you people believe that junk. There's no God and there's no Messiah coming back. It's scoffing. What else did they say? They're ignorant in verse 5 that, you know, God made the worlds. And they're ignorant of the the worldwide flood in verse 6. What do people make fun of? All these people who tell us all this stuff, they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, the Grand Canyon took billions of years for the Grand Canyon to come into existence. And dinosaurs are millions and millions, maybe billions of years old, and yet we find footprints in the same layer of the Earth's crust as human being footprints. What's wrong with their... their, They want a lot of time. They need a lot of time. Because for random chance to take place, to, to bring up... You know, I was a monkey swinging through a tree, you've heard me say. I lost my tail and became a Ph.D., they need time for that to happen. You think of all the accidents that had to happen. For all that to happen, for everything to fall in place, 
takes billions and billions of years. And they stay still. They still need more time. It just doesn't happen that way. But they need an answer because to recognize there's design in creation means that there's a designer out there. We believe in a designer. We believe God made the heavens and the earth. He made it from nothing. We accept that. We accept a worldwide flood. We accept that he's going to come again. And the Bible says one day every knee is going to bow. So the skeptics and the scoffers will one day beg for mercy. But it'll be too late if they haven't trusted Jesus Christ. And so here we have these mockers. And back in Jude, he, he says here, there will be mockers in the last day, scoffers in the last day, who walk after their own ungodly lust. You see, if we could get rid of all the preachers, get rid of all the Bibles, we could maybe be comfortable committing acts of immorality and living in sin. We wouldn't be reminded by preachers in the Word of God. I have news for you. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. We're still all going to stand before Him. And if you're not a believer, you'll be at the great white throne. If you're a believer, your works are going to be judged. So we remember the words. Remember the words. And we, we need to uh, remind ourselves to, to remember the words. And look at it says, remember the words spoken. And then verse 18, he says, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last day who walk after their own godly not lust. These be they who separate themselves sensual. Sensual. What is that, Brother Dan? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to show you how this Greek word is translated in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. I've told you before, one Greek, can be, Greek word can be translated in many ways. But in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, it's translated here, natural, natural. Look at 2.14, 1 Corinthians. It says here, <clears throat> But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. You know, the lost man is all about satisfying his own flesh. He's sensual. He's sensual. He wants to please himself. He doesn't care about other people. And there are people in our world who are lost that say, Well, it's really about getting all I can get in this life because they don't believe in an afterlife, so they want to be satisfied in all aspects of life. And their desire is to be rich and to have immoral activity in their life and to live any way they want to live. That's sensual. Pleasing yourself. It's translated here, natural, the natural man. Now, there's three men in here, the natural man, we find the spiritual man and the carnal man are all in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There's three kinds of people in our world. There's lost people, the natural man. There's spiritual men. These are believers, believers who know the Lord Jesus Christ and they want to do the right thing and they listen to the Holy Spirit. They, the Holy Spirit tells them not to do anything, do something or to change something. They listen to Him and they walk by the Spirit. Controlled by the Spirit. And then there's the carnal man. A lot of Christians fall into that category. I would say probably 10 to 1 Christians that live spiritual, maybe one, the other nine live carnal. Carnal means it's translated fleshly in your Bible. What does the flesh want to do? I joked last Sunday night, I've heard it all week. I joked and said I've had a lifelong affair with little Debbie. And, uh, and it, it, I got teased about that, my affair. And, uh, I'm trying to break it off. Because you know, it's not good for me. But 
this is what the carnal man does. He satisfies flesh in everything he does. And I use myself in my struggles. But think of all the things the flesh desires. It's, you know, that joke I told you about the preacher, he's in bed in the morning, and I ruined the joke already, but his mom has to wake him up and force him to go to church because he doesn't want to go to church, you know. His old flesh wants to sleep in. Our old flesh doesn't want to do anything good. If your flesh wants to do it, it's a good, there's a good chance it's wrong. <laughs> oh, you want to say something, you know, you got just the right critical comeback. You're going to say it to someone because you just want to say it. You don't like this person. And all of a sudden, bam, you say it. It feels so good to the flesh. But then the Lord just convicts you and you feel terrible. The carnal person just does whatever they want to do and they profess to know Christ. And they're carnal and they're going to be empty-handed. They're going to be chased in this, in this life and be empty-handed in the next life. Because living carnally does not help you. Living spiritually does. And we all have our carnal side, don't we? It's a battle. I've told you before, old Dan and new Dan. Constantly going at it. Old Dan wants to do something. New Dan convicts him and old Dan says, shut up, new Dan. I don't want to hear that. You know, and it's a constant battle. And it's a battle in your life. And you're, you're living a life that's either carnal or spiritual. And you've got to determine at some point in time in your life, I'm going to start living for God. I'm going to start living for others. I'm concerned about my kids and my grandkids and my neighbors, more concerned than I am from satisfying my own lust to my own self. And there's a falling away. There's a lot of people who profess to be Christians who don't know God. First John says, if they were of us, they would still be with us. There are a lot of people that say they're Christians. I heard this same preacher say this morning, and he said he knows a lot of preachers that have fallen by the wayside, some that have even said, I don't believe in God. The truth is they never had God to begin with because the Lord never leaves you nor forsakes you. He abides with you forever, forever. And forever means forever. And so we know there's a lot of people living fleshly carnal lives. And so we have to realize that it's time for us to remember the word of God. Remember the words the apostles taught for us. Remember the words the apostles gave us here, the holy word of God, and, and remember what it has to say. And then we need to remain in love, verses 20 and 21. But ye, beloved, we got to do three things. we got to build up, pray up, and look up. Ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. We have to build ourselves up. We have to exercise faith and build our faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. When you're doubting, you're not in Scripture like you should be. So we build up, and then it says praying. We pray up. We have to pray. And, and, and most Christians do not have a relationship with the Lord because they do not have a prayer life. Some even read their Bible regularly, regularly, but they don't have a prayer life. My grandmother read her Bible through every year. I thought that's pretty cool to have a grandmother tell me I read my Bible through every year, and she'd tell me things about the Bible. And she had a prayer life as well. But a lot of people read the Bible, but don't pray. And when you don't have a prayer life, you're not living a victorious life at all. In my life, 
I've studied the Bible and studied the Bible and studied the Bible. I, my pastor, I said, how often should I study as a pastor? He said, I study 20 to 30 hours a week. So my goal was 30. I remember when I was a young pastor, went to Panama, and I start studying, and two hours later, I'm asleep in that chair. And I'm only in my 20s, but studying all those hours, I, I couldn't even figure out what to study about. Pastor, what do you study? Well, you want to know all the background of the book, who wrote it, why, who was writing to, was he writing to Christians or non-Christians? Was he writing a personal letter to Philemon? What, what, who was he writing to? What audience, Jews or Gentiles? And I thought, well, I never thought about that. And there's some more time to study. And what are all the words mean in there? you got to do your word study. What about the cultural implications? We don't greet one another with a holy kiss. We shake hands in our culture. But all those things, and eventually I'm finding myself studying, studying and studying. But you know what? If I don't have a prayer life, all this stuff going in here doesn't help me like talking to the Lord does. And he talks to me. But I have to talk to him as well. And he'll also, a lot of times I've told people, the problem with your prayer life is you don't know how to pray. Jesus said, teach us to pray. And we have to, first of all, confess our sins. It's the first thing you do when you pray. He doesn't hear you. The Bible said, the Lord's arm is not short that he cannot save, but his ears won't hear you because of your sin. That's Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Psalm 66, 18. Your iniquities have hidden him from you and he will not hear you. So if you don't confess your sin, the sin you committed since the last time you prayed, forget praying. He's not going to hear a word you said. Confess your sin. Then adore him and, and raise him up. Praise the Lord. Thank him and praise him for all he's done for you. Tell him how awesome he is as a God and how much you love him. And then finally you can ask. But see, we, we don't have a prayer life. We pray, now I lay me down to sleep. Or thank you for the food. And we think that's a prayer life. And there's volumes written on men of prayer. And the Bible says the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer is a difference maker in your life. And some of you need to establish a prayer life. Start praying. Talk to God. I, I, I know that I'm not an example of a prayer warrior. I failed so much. But I know, I think enough of my kids and grandkids to call their name out every day and to pray for special needs in my family. I have a grandson that could be very sick, and I have, uh, uh, you know, different ones in my family. I pray for their strengths, thank God for their strengths, and pray for their weaknesses every day. Why? I have to care more about them than myself. My life's almost over. I'm not saying I'm dying tomorrow, but, you know, I'm not young like they are. And you should think enough of others to pray for them. Prayer is not just asking for things that I want to consume it upon my lust. Prayer is about others, lifting others up. And when you begin to pray for others, it'll transform the way you think of people. I, I want to look at people through the eyes of grace. I, I want to see in people's lives the potential of their life and what can happen to them when God works on them, you know. I don't want to judge people and criticize. I want to see the best in people. And the only way I can have those eyes of grace is to get close to my Lord and look at people like he does. He didn't cast the first stone, did he? He said, let the person who has no fault, no sin in their life cast the first stone. 
I look around our congregation and we have Christians who have been saved for many, many years that love the Lord. I know we have prayer warriors in this church. We have people that love the word and read their Bibles. But I also know we have carnal Christians. I, I don't sit and pick and choose. I don't know who they all are, but I'm sure we have plenty here. And I'm sure we have people here that uh, are young Christians and weak Christians. And, and so prayer is essential for this church to go forward, to pray for each other. And when someone's sick, I, I want to remember, and my list gets long, and I have a lot of it memorized, to pray for this sick person and that person, and then say, Lord, is there anyone else that you can bring to my mind or anything I need to pray about? Prayer changes things. And I didn't plan on spending so much time on prayer, but here he says we, we have to build up, we have to pray up, we have to look up, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Oh, I'm thankful for that mercy. <laughs> oh, God's been merciful with me. I'll tell you what, I'm thankful. So we look. Then, so we not only remember the words and remain in love, we reach out to others. And here's a great verse. And some having compassion make a difference or, or make a distinction or help with doubt, we could say. If you have compassion, you're a difference maker. If you don't, you're not. Compassion is a huge word in the Bible. I want to make a difference. This word compassion, look in verse 2. In verse 2, the first word of verse 2, it's translated there how? Mercy. In verse 21, it's translated mercy. And verse 22, it's translated compassion. Same word. In Matthew 18, it's translated pity. I want to be like that. And when you have compassion, you will make a difference. You'll care about the down and out person. You'll care about sinners being saved. You'll care about your neighbor and your coworker. And when you become a prayer warrior and a person of compassion, you'll care about others. It's not just about yourself. And when you care about others, you'll act that way. And they'll know you care. Some of the greatest experiences in my life growing up. My dad lost his job. He was too stubborn to take unemployment. Now, unemployment's one of those you pay into. It's like Medicare. I, you know, it took me 65 years to get it. Actually, I got it in 39 years now. It took me 65 years to get it. They're wanting to give it to people who haven't worked at all. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. But my dad was really old school. He wouldn't take unemployment. So for two years, when you have seven kids, nine people around the table, and you don't have meat Monday through Saturdays because you can't afford it, meat was Sunday. So we all made sure to get to Sunday dinner, you know? It's usually chicken. And, uh, but we didn't have a lot. And for two years, we struggled and struggled. My dad would find an odd job. Finally, he got a good job. My dad was a hardworking man. He wasn't lazy. But he wouldn't take a handout, he thought. I don't agree with him take, not taking unemployment. I thought he should have. And my mom thought he should have, but he wouldn't. He was, no, I'm not taking it. And, you know, for two years. And I remember Thanksgiving was coming up, and we didn't have a thing in the house. And I remember there was a knock at our door. We had all become Christians. And we're all baptized, the kids anyway. At Okemos Baptist, my parents were already Christians. There's a knock at our door. And man, they brought so much food on that Thanksgiving day. I never forgot it. 
Those people made a difference because I'm still talking about it over 50 years later. And I remember pulling out the can of mixed nuts and my eyes got big. I knew of peanuts, but these looked good. You know, and my mom and dad were having to kind of calm us down because we would have eaten it all right then, raw turkey and all, I guess, because we were all excited about bags and bags and bags of groceries. Not long, too long after my dad got a job, but I'll never forget that Thanksgiving. It was a difference maker. Why? Somebody in that church cared about that roughneck family, and we were roughnecks. We were roughnecks, I can tell you. I know our church was embarrassed at our behavior, and especially mine at times. We moved to a different church during my youth era, and I had a chance to start over, and I messed up there too a little bit, you know? But you know what? That was a difference maker. Somebody cared enough for the nine of us to bring groceries to our house. That may be one of the reasons I'm here today. I don't know that. But it made a difference. And it made a difference when a guy named Bill, who's now out of the ministry, unfortunately, would, would bring me to Denny's restaurant, and he'd feed me, and then he would disciple me, teach me things in Scripture. He spent time with this kid, and I was 15, and I wasn't a good kid, but he poured time into me. He made a difference. He made a difference. You know who didn't make a difference in my life? Grouchy, mean Christians that would climb all over me. I got to Bible college, and I was still pretty rough around the edges, and I had a shirt. I had the shirt down here a little bit, showing I had some muscles in those days. And I walked in one of the offices, and one of the men called me in the office and just started getting all over me about how carnal and worldly I was wearing this shirt. I never had any respect for that guy after that. He didn't make a difference in a positive way. I want to be compassionate. I want to be compassionate. All Christians should want to be compassionate. We should care about people. We can't be respecter of persons. Thank God that people weren't that way with me. I could have got our family cast out of the church, but God had compassion on me, and people who were like God had compassion on me. You know, I need to have compassion for others. That's the difference. And others save with fear. That's our word phobia, by the way, the Greek word, pulling them out of the fire. So some people are afraid with fear and they don't even want garments spotted by them. They don't want dirty garments. They want to live a pure life and they're concerned, they're afraid for people and they help them out of the fire. And I want, I want to be a person who's concerned enough, fearful for others, compassionate for others. And I love how Jude closes. He says, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless <clears throat> before, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, glory, that word doxa, our word doxology. And great words in there. We don't have time, but... But God, God, to the only wise God, as we're Sophia sophisticated, our God is sophisticated, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. How does he conclude the book? He concludes by reminding us that God's in control. He's going to keep us. 
He's going to take care of us. He's a wise God, an all-powerful God, and he's going to take care of me. What do we learn today, Brother Dan? We learned last week and today that doctrine matters. Doctrine matters, folks. And I just, I just don't want to be a preacher where people aren't learning and marking their Bibles. I feel like I'd be failing. The pastor's supposed to be apt to teach. Right? Jesus was a rabbi. What was that? Teacher. Teacher. And we hear a lot about entertainment today. We need to remember the words the apostles shared and are written in this book. We need to have compassion, and then we need to realize we need both those things because judgment is coming. Judgment's coming. This is a harsh book. It talks about Simon and Gomorrah being an example. That's New Testament. Judgment's coming. People are going to answer to God for their sin. What do we do? Do we say, yeah, I can't wait till judgment comes and those people are dealt with? No, that's not what we do. You know, the Bible says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't take pleasure in their death. Why would we? If we're like God, we have compassion. We don't want anyone to go to hell. I pray for my worst enemy every day. I, I pray, Lord, save Steve. I won't tell you his last name. And help me not to be bitter against him. That's my prayer. I can't, still can't stand the guy. I still think if I ever see him, be one right to the jaw. As Jackie Gleason said, one to the kisser, I'm going to send him to the moon. And that wouldn't be right. So I pray every day, God, help me not to be bitter. Save him. Why? I know my old nature's no good. There's nothing good in me. The only good in me is God. And he's a difference maker. And I want to be a difference maker. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Help us to make a difference, Lord. Help us to have compassion for the ungodly. And Lord, it's, it's hard to even stomach the ungodliness we see. But Lord, we need to realize that if it weren't for your grace, we'd be in that same place. Help us to realize that and quit being so high and mighty for us. Help us to humble ourselves. Have compassion. Make a difference in our world. Lord, if there's anybody here who's not saved, I just ask them right now to come to the altar to be saved. With heads bowed and eye closed, eyes closed, is there anyone who will raise your hand and say, I, I'm not a believer, I need the Lord? Is there anybody like that? No hands. Lord, help us to be compassionate. Bless us now in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.